Welcome to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast, where you will find sermons, devotional thoughts, and current event conversations, all based on a biblical worldview. Well, good morning. It is our privilege today to go back again into the book of Daniel, this series. And I must say, I mean, I have been through a number of series over the years uh, when it comes to the book of Daniel. But I've saw, seen some new things as I've been studying this book again, especially in chapter 3, which we will be exploring today, Daniel chapter 3. And one of the things I see is just how very relevant the issues that they were dealing with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we see in chapter 3, how relevant those issues that they dealt with are becoming to God's people today. And so this book is not just ancient history. This is a foretaste of what is to come in some respects. In Daniel chapter 2, which pastor spoke on last week, you all know Daniel chapter 2, most of you do, I'm sure, you see the great image and the head of gold, the chest and the arms of silver, the belly and thighs of, of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet were what? Iron mixed with clay. And all the way down to the toes. Uh, where are we today in that image in terms of time? We are in the toes. Somebody said this morning, I think we're in the toenails. <laughs> and we are down in that very last time of this earth's history. So this, this chapter is speaking to people in the time of the end. That's you and that's me. We're living in the very toes. One of the things I see in this chapter is that there is a contest being waged between the gods of Babylon and the true God, a contest for the allegiance and the loyalty of King Nebuchadnezzar, but also the people of Babylon. A rising conflict between these gods is seen here, and the king has been influenced for a time to respect and acknowledge the God of Daniel and his companions. He has come to recognize that that God is a powerful and a magnificent God who can do things that he's never seen any of the gods of Babylon do. Uh, Daniel 2.47 tells us, this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's response after he has heard Daniel's interpretation of the dream. Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. The king falls down and prostrates himself before Daniel, gives him many gifts and, and exalts him to a high position in his, his uh, government. But the king has, at that time, fallen more into the influence of Daniel's God. And for a time, he's observing that. But over time, he is a mighty ruler. And over time, this proud, ambitious king, he sees the, the pride of Babylon. Isn't this not this great Babylon that I have built? You know, the skeptics years ago used to say, there's no evidence there was any king named Nebuchadnezzar that built Babylon. Do you know what the archaeologists found some years later? Millions of bricks 
with his name on them. I've actually held one of those bricks in my hand. An archaeologist came and spoke to pastors in Northern California Conference one time. He passed the brick around, and I looked at that, and I said, there's the evidence. I can't read cuneiform, but he assured us it's there. Many people have seen those images on, on those bricks. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's was a real king. It wasn't imaginary. And there's millions of bricks that testify to that. Um, but as time goes on, the king is being drawn away back to his ancient beliefs in the old gods of Babylon. And uh, his counselors that are not part of Babylon's uh, uh, group that, that worship these gods, they're encouraging the king, go back to the old ways, that, you know, the, what, the gods that we know. The city of Babylon, by the way, was a very religious city. And the archaeologists, I've seen some of the work they've done and the, and the maps they've drawn. And do you know what you see all over Babylon? Big monumental temples dedicated to all these different gods that were in their pantheon of gods that they were worshiping. So, and they were bowing down to, there must have been some big images in some of those temples, I'm sure. So the idea of, of a God using an image to impress um, Nebuchadnezzar is not surprising, is it? And so now we see in Daniel chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar has come up with a plan and uh, he's resisting uh, this message of succeeding kingdoms falling one after another. And so he says um, to himself, I think I'm going to build a new image. And this image is, what is it? Let's read it here. Daniel chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. That's about 90 feet high. If you, if you see a nine-story building, you're looking up quite a ways. Like, this is a big image. And he set up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word together together, the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This image, what was it made of? Was it gold and silver and, and bronze? No. What was it? All gold from the head to the toes. All gold. What was Nebuchadnezzar trying to say there? He's saying, I don't like this idea of other empires coming after us, that our empire should somehow last. Our empire is going to last forever. And I'm going to build an image and have people bow down and worship it because I don't like this idea of succeeding empires. What happens with all the other empires in, in the first image? They all come to an end, don't they? They rise, they come to power, and then they fall. One after another after another. They all fall, but he says, I don't want my, my empire to fall. <clears throat> so it's all gold. And so... <clears throat> There's a spiritual battle here. There's spiritual warfare going on, a battle between the gods and the true and living God. Uh, the, the, the impact is, of, of this image is to bring all these people back to, the, to worship of the, um, the various gods, their pantheon of pagan gods. Daniel chapter 3, verses 4 to 6 tell us, Then a herald cried aloud to you, it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that all the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the, ha the lyre, and psaltery, 
in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And, uh, but is this voluntary? What does the next verse tell us? And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Um, so it wasn't very voluntary, was it? Uh, how do you like those options? <laughs> uh, what's the temptation? Um, well, I could just bow for a little while. You know, it's not that big a deal because I don't really believe this, but I don't want to go into that fiery furnace. So, you know, it, for appearances sake, I could bow. Wouldn't it have been easy for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to do that? It would have been easy. It would be easy to, to um, rationalize that as, a, as an option. But they didn't do that. So um, we have here the principle of compelled worship. Has that ever been an issue over time for God's people? Absolutely. Uh, not only in ancient times, but uh, in times in the past. Uh, if you've ever heard about the Middle Ages and the, the church that was in power at that time, and Millions of people died because they wouldn't bow the knee to the, the images or the, to the uh, teachings of that church. And compelled worship, will that ever be an issue again in the last days? Uh, you can be sure it will. And so all of these officials, they're from all over the empire. Now this is a big arena. This is a big um, uh, theater on display in a sense. Here you've got this magnificent all gold image, 90 feet tall, and officials from all over the Babylonian Empire, which was quite extensive for that time. Uh, many different countries had been conquered uh, by the Babylonians and they had turned them into their provinces. And he's, these are the governors and the officials of these different provinces. So the whole empire is there represented, so to speak, and they're all watching what's gonna happen here. There are three Hebrew worthies, however, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are standing in the midst of these officials because they've been elevated to be uh, in official positions in the province of Babylon. And so they have the choice to compromise for appearances sake, to bow down. Um, but did God have anything to say about bowing down to other images? What are the first two of the Ten Commandments? The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment says, you're not to make images and you're not to bow down to them. So the very first two commandments would have been violated if they had bowed down to this and express disobedience to God. Their option is obey God and the king says you're going into the fiery furnace or stand and bear the consequences. Are people in the last days going to have to face similar issues in their lives? Maybe some of us here don't know how near that could be. We need to have the kind of faith that will say, whatever the consequences, I will stand. But um, as the story continues, um, the powers of darkness appear to be about to gain a great triumph in spreading heathen worship throughout the nation of, of the and throughout the empire of Babylon. 
But God's purpose was to make the presence of Israel a source of light and testimony for the worship of the true God to the whole empire. And God had put the Jewish people, God's people had been placed there in part as punishment for their failure to be obedient to God, but also because here is now the world power. They're right there in the center of this place of power and their influence to worship the true God was being, uh, it was, there was a battle between that influence and the, the, what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do with this all gold image. Not all had bowed the knee to this idolatrous symbol of, of uh, worldly power. In the midst of the worshiping multitude, God had three men who had chosen to honor the God of heaven. And um, do you suppose anybody is watching these three uh, Hebrews there that have been elevated in some cases perhaps above them in, in terms of, of governmental influence and power? Um, as the king is watching, however, going back just a minute here, the king rages, rises in, um, as he raises his arm in defiance to the God of the Hebrews and declares, uh, let, let me read here Daniel 3, 16 to 18. Daniel 3, verses 16 to now, and 18. First of all, they, they stand, it's reported to Nebuchadnezzar that three people have defied his order, he said. He says, bring them here. So they bring them up onto the platform where the king's throne is overlooking the fiery furnace. And these three Hebrew worthies stand before how many thousands we do not know of these officials from all over the empire. And it's reported to the king, these, these three men did not bow before the image. They don't believe your gods. They don't serve your gods. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to, to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of these instruments and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And the king, Ellen White has this statement where she saw this in vision. She says the king rose his arm and his fist in the air and in defiance says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Can you see the scene? He's furious. He's in a rage. And he's defying the God that he used to believe in. And he's saying, who is the God? No God has the power to do that. Is that a contest of, of gods here that's being set up? Can you see the drama at the moment? And so a lot is on the line here. And what's the response of, of the three Hebrew worthies? They answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, what they're saying is, we have no need to defend ourselves. Um, we don't need to do that. Um, verses 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25 says, The king 
commands that, first of all, he, he commands that they be taken uh, and bound, and, and they, they take some of the mighty men from the army and said, cast them into the burning fiery furnace. They heat it to seven times its normal heat. And they cast them into that burning fiery furnace. Did it take courage of conviction, faith, trust in God for them to do that? Will we need that kind of faith someday? And so the king sees them cast into the furnace. And then in verse 24 it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste. Can you see him sitting there watching this? Serves them right. And all of a sudden he just rises up quickly. And he, he spoke and he says to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar is astonished. He's seen something he didn't expect to see. He expected to see them curling up in little pieces of ash. Instead, they're, they're standing up, walking about, and the figure of the fourth is there, that appears like the Son of God. What just happened there? God showed up, didn't he? He said, these are my servants. This is a test. The king has defied my name and my honor. And I am showing up before the entire representatives of the whole empire of Babylon. And I'm going to demonstrate who I am and who is going to defy you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar comes to the cave entrance, or I'm sorry, to the, um, the, uh, the furnace entrance, and um, he, um, he tells him, come on out. I, I want to talk to you. And uh, verses 28 and 29 say, Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. And then what does the king do? He reverts to his old ways. He, more, more compulsive reaction is here. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there's no other God who can deliver like this. Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing that their God is able to deliver. And that is one of the messages that is found all through the book of Daniel, as we'll see as we go on. God is a God who is able to deliver. And so the king is recognizing that. <clears throat> the um, issue is idolatry here. We see idolatry at work in a lot of ways. Is, is idolatry an issue today? In Babylon, we saw all kinds of, we see there's all kinds of idols that they're bowing down and worshiping. Well, in America today, uh, in most places, we don't see a lot of, there are people from other countries and cultures that have come here who built temples and things who do bow to those images. But for the average American, most Americans today, 
You don't see many of them bowing down physically to some graven image. But does that mean there's no idolatry today in America? Idolatry. <laughs> what is idolatry? Webster's, I looked it up in Webster's, it says the worship of idols, blind or excessive devotion or adoration to a person or a thing. Blind or excessive adoration to a person or a thing. So, um, <laughs> is, is that possible today? Do we see anything like that today? There's materialism, isn't there? Many people are caught up in the chase. The purpose of their life is to gather all the wealth they can, and then they think their life is going to be great. Wealth, money, possessions, cherished objects, houses, cars, lands, fashions. Cherished ideas or opinions can also be idols, can't they? Some people get with some idea, some philosophy, some, some uh, idea that, um, or opinion that they just can't give up and it becomes an idol in their life. Well, how do we relate or deal with idolatry in our own idols? First of all, you learn to put God first in your life, don't you? And if you immerse yourselves in God and in his word, that in itself will give you a new vision of what life is really like. And those idols and those things in your life that used to be so important will change. I remember I was nine, about 19 years old when I gave my heart to the Lord. And in one night, my values, my goals, my life did a 180 degree turn. Now I know that isn't everyone's experience, but it was mine. I came home a different person from the person that left our house that night. And God can do that for people. And it doesn't always happen in that way, but he can do that for people. Sometimes it's a gradual thing over time. God can, is a God who can help us with those things. We put God first, his word first. But here's my favorite, one of the things I just love. There's this phrase that I've used before, the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Do you know where that phrase comes from? Well, there was this powerful Scottish preacher, Thomas Chalmers, who lived in the late 18th and early 19th century. He was a professor in the university at Edinburgh, but he was also a pastor. He held both positions and his preaching was so winning, so powerful, so persuasive that people by the thousands would come to hear him preach. They say when at his funeral, half the city of, um, of um, what in Glasgow was the other one, the major, which one? Edinburgh, thank you. I, I seen a moment, I know that well. Edinburgh, half the city of Edinburgh showed up at his funeral. And he said, yes, he was the one who, who coined this phrase, the, the expulsive power of a new affection. He said, and I'm quoting, the root power of sin is severed by the power of a superior pleasure, a more compelling joy. When you meet Jesus, when you see his love, when you read the gospels, when you see the life of Christ, 
and you fall in love with Jesus, these other affections, these other things in your life that would hold you in bound, they suddenly lose their power because you have something better. You have something better. The expulsive power of a new affection, superior pleasure, a more compelling joy. There's a quote from Christ Object Lessons I'd like to share with you. <clears throat> she says this, in dealing with uh, idolatry. So should it be now, the people of the world are worshiping false gods. They are to be turned from their false worship, not by hearing denunciation of their idols, but by, holding, but by beholding something better. God's goodness is to be made known. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. A Christian who's filled with the love of God, who can't help but praise God and exalt him and represent him in their life and say, oh, the Lord has been so good to me. He's done these wonderful things in my life. And I'm so pleased that I have this wonderful hope. Yeah, the world looks like it's falling apart, but I'm not going to be too worried about that because I know God has something better waiting for us. And that witness, that compelling joy, that um, something better that we have is so attractive that other people will want to know more about that. May our daily walk be so filled with gratitude and joy so that our witness to the world is winning and persuasive. Isn't God looking for us to be that kind of witnesses? Winning and persuasive witnesses. We can offer hope to a world growing more and more hopeless each day. God's goodness is to be made known. We are called to be his witnesses and declare his praise. Well, <clears throat> the theme of deliverance is definitely there in the book of Daniel. The name Daniel means God is my judge. In the Bible, a judge is frequently used in a positive way. When we hear the word judge today, often our reaction is somewhat negative, isn't it? If you have to stand before the judge, you may feel like, uh-oh, what's the verdict going to be? He has the power to let you go or, or to say, you're, you're so many years. <laughs> and so we have this, this idea of the judge in a rather neg negative way. But in Bible times, uh, among God's people, that name had a different meaning, and it was frequently used in a positive way. It meant deliverer or savior. I'm going to read a few verses to you from the book of Judges just to demonstrate that. God's people had fallen back into their old ways and idolatry and so forth, and they were being oppressed by the people in the land. And in verse uh, Judges 2, verse 16, it says, The Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So the, what are the judges doing here? They're delivering them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So a judge was a deliverer. And then in verse 18, and another example, and when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies. And another one in chapter 3 of Judges, verse 9, 
when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people, the children of Israel, who delivered them. And um, so we have other examples of this that in the Bible, the, a judge also could be a deliverer, a savior of sorts. <clears throat> so um, in the book of Daniel, this theme of deliverance is carried out in many ways through the different chapters of Daniel. We see, for example, in chapter 1, where God's people are conquered and oppressed, and here they are, some of them being carried off, many of them being carried off into Babylon. It looks like God has lost. It looks like he's let them down. But God had a purpose for them being there besides being punished for their, their sins. In chapter 3, they're delivered from what? The fiery furnace. God shows up, doesn't he? In chapter 6, Daniel is delivered from where? The lion's den. In chapter 7, we have a prophecy. Where this is the prophetic portion of the book begins in chapter 7. And God's people are delivered from persecution and the everlasting kingdom is given to them. That's the end of those, that um, prophetic dream. And in chapters 10 to 12, we see the ultimate deliverance of God's people throughout eternity. Uh, that theme of deliverance is there throughout the book of Daniel. And also, God is our sovereign deliverer in other ways. He's, he is sovereign over the nations. God is still so sovereign in the world today, even though at times it may not appear that way. What does it mean to be sovereign? Well, the dictionary tells us it can be both a noun and an adjective, but it means supreme above all others, supreme in power and authority. And um, so the kings in that day were their sovereign rulers. Nebuchadnezzar was the sovereign ruler over the whole empire. And God, who does God owe his sovereignty to? Anybody? Did anybody give him that power? He is above all, above all, over all. He is sovereign. And so the sovereignty of God is a central theme in the book of Daniel. And this means that even when a nation is oppressing his people, he's still sovereign over that nation. Is the book of Daniel relevant to us today? Does it have any meaning or, or lessons or relevancy for us today? Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. It says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. This is talking about the image that was uh, seen by Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and Daniel is interpreting for him. He says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom in the days of these kings. So it, we're down in the toes, aren't we? And that's when God is saying he will set up his kingdom, which will never be destroyed, an eternal kingdom. God's sovereignty will be on display in his eternal kingdom that will be set up in the day of the end, in this time that we are living in. We are there. We are living in those days. That is now. This is our time. is called the very time of the end. 
uh, chapter 2, Dan, chapter 2, verse 28, tells us, the God of heaven has made known what will be in the latter days. So he tells in the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, this dream, it, the Lord is revealing to you what will be in the latter days. That's our time. Um, so last day issues that we see in the book of Daniel are between true and false worship, and they see the spiritual battle for the king's allegiance. The gods of Babylon uh, are to be worshipped, or the god of the most high god, as they sometimes refer to in, in, the, in Daniel. The king also calls him sometimes the most high god. In the book of Revelation, we see depicted a battle between false and compelled worship and true and freely chosen worship. So God's word, in the panorama of God's word, we see at the end in the book of Revelation, again, this battle between true uh, religion and false religion, between the worship of the true God and false gods or idols. And God always offers us his worship as a freely, freely made choice, doesn't he? He doesn't compel us. He doesn't force us to believe or trust him or to serve him. But the religion of the world always seems to tend towards compelling. The faith of God's people has been tested at many times and in many ways over the centuries. But God's everlasting kingdom will be inhabited by people who have been obedient to God's law and who love God more than any of the temptations or offers of this world or its allurements. A people who are obedient to God and who trust in him. These are people who have stood the test and not bowed to the idols of the age. Let me ask you this question. Now we talk about deliverance. Does God still deliver those who resist the temptation to yield to the pressures to conform to the worldly powers? Does God still deliver those people today? Well, um, we know sometimes the deliverance is of right away, but often it is it is deferred. It comes later, but God ultimately will defer or will uh, deliver all His faithful people. I heard this story last fall. Uh, I was watching online some of the proceedings at the General Conference Fall Council, and Dr. Arthur Steele who I believe spent much of his life in the Soviet Union. And I think he was the head of our uh, division, our world division in that part of the world. He tells this story. A Christian was sentenced to serve until death in a prison camp in Russian Siberia. One thing that became clear in the reign of the communists in, in the Soviet Union was they were afraid of the Christians and Christian faith. They made it one of their highest priorities to, they went in, they destroyed and damaged churches. They turned them into museums of atheism and mocked Christianity. And a Christian could be treated like a murderer just for owning a Bible. All it would take is just to own a Bible and they could treat you in terrible ways. And so um, the story that Dr. Steele tells is of a Christian who was sentenced to serve until his death in a prison camp in Russian Siberia. His crime was that he believed in and served God. That's all it took. 
And this camp was in one of the coldest parts of Siberia in a place with heavily forested uh, uh, land. Impen the, the prison camp he was sent to was there and it was an impenetrable forest full of wild animals. And then on one side, three sides were forests and one side there was a river that ran by the prison. So they were hemmed in on three sides by this forest and, and by the river. And um, <clears throat> the head of the prison knew of this man and he knew he was a Christian. And the, and the warden would mock him and sneer at him publicly and make a public joke of him. He, he, he made it his mission to, uh, to really uh, ridicule and, and sneer this man and his Christian faith. <clears throat> One day someone came to the warden and reported to him, you know, that Christian has some really fun and interesting stories from the Bible that has been entertaining some of the prisoners. And uh, <clears throat> he was told of a New Testament story describing Jesus walking on the water. Jesus walking on the water, the garden warden says, that's ridiculous. So the warden calls the prisoner to his, uh, come, come to him, and he says, do you actually believe that amusing little fairy tale? Do you believe that stuff? And the believer confirmed, I do indeed, it's the word of God and I believe it. And the warden has a response. He says, here's my opportunity. How can you believe this garbage? He says, you believe these tales that, and you destroy your life because of that? And, but the believer would not yield. He says, these are not hilarious tales. This is the truth. So the warden is determined to put him to the test. He says, if God is truly alive, you should be able to walk on water, shouldn't you? And there's the river out here. Why don't you go out and walk on the water? And if you do, if you're able to do that, then your God is real and the Bible is true. If you can do that, walk on the water. The prisoner says, all right. And, and he also says, if you do, if you walk on the water, you will be released from the prison. You'll be set free. But if you cannot walk on the water, I will make your life miserable and you will be here in misery until you rot. And so the prisoner says he accepts the challenge and he says, I need three days to fast and pray. Warden says, okay. And after three days, we're going to put you down there by the river. You're going to walk. And so after three days, the warden calls all of the, the prisoners, all of the guards and the staff from the prison. They're all there to watch this scene. And the warden's goal, of course, is to prove that God is dead and the Bible is a joke. And so he orders the believer, go ahead, go out there and walk on the water. The believer draws near the river. He kneels down one more time and prays. And as he prays, he, he sees what appears to him to look like a bridge going over the river. He stands up, and in faith he stands up and he walks out and he walks on what he sees as a bridge. And he starts walking over the river on the bridge. All of a sudden, the people who've been mocking and jeering and, and making fun of him and mocking him, all of a sudden, the whole camp becomes silent. 
They're stunned. They're seeing something they never thought they would see. The laughter and the mocking cease. All have witnessed the presence God has shown up, just as he did for the three Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace. At this time and in this age, God shows up for that prisoner and shows that he is still alive and all-powerful. And that day, according to Dr. Steele's account, many prisoners and the warden himself became believers. God can still show up today, can't he? But whether he shows up immediately or whether he doesn't, God will always show up for his people ultimately. He will be the ultimate deliverer. If God always rescued us from the consequences of the test to our faith, uh, would that work out well for the Christian faith? Uh, well, first of all, Christians wouldn't have to live by faith, would they? I mean, well, God will take care of it. I mean, I don't have to be tested that way. Uh, but what would happen to Christianity? Well, it would be looked upon by the world as, wow, if Christians got a great insurance policy, let me get in line, I'll sign up for that. But they're not Christians, they don't have belief, they don't, faith, they don't have faith in God. So God doesn't always choose to immediately deliver. Our God is looking for people who are determined to be faithful regardless of the consequences. Our eternal reward is worth any suffering we may have to endure today. Our God is faithful, and he is able to deliver. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast. You can find us at woodlandsadventist.org, and you can visit us anytime. You're more than welcome. God bless you, and have a great day.